leadership beyond a definition, the boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide, conversations about growth. Leadership Unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. I am your host, Virginia Hardy. Joining me today is Satana D. Berry, District Attorney for Durham County. As District Attorney, Satana D. Berry has prioritized the prosecution of serious offenses, implemented policies to reduce unnecessary pre-child incarceration and court involvement, and she has worked to improve trust and equity within the courts. Throughout her career, Satana has worked to dismantle systems that restrict the lives of poor people, families, communities of color, and other marginalized and unrepresented groups. She brings to the Office of District Attorney extensive experience, having served as a criminal defense attorney in her hometown of Hamlet, North Carolina, as general counsel for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, and as executive director of the nonprofit North Carolina Housing Coalition. Satana is a recipient of the North Carolina Justice Center's 2020 Defender of Justice Award for Litigation, the Duke Law Alumni Association's 2020 Charles S. Murphy Award for Civic Service, and Attorney General Josh Stein's Dogwood Award. She received her baccalaureate degree in sociology from Princeton University, her Juris Doctorate from Duke University School of Law, and her Master's in Business Administration from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She is a mother who enjoys spending time with her active teenage daughters. Satana, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Satana, you and I, um, my friend, uh, go way back from our time in uh, the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative. And uh, who would have thought that for, that was like 1999 to 2001, I think? That's yes, a while ago. A while ago. That, and, and here you are, district attorney. Tell me about this. How, how did you get here, my friend? Uh, it was a long and circuitous route. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the one thing we all probably can say uh, when we look back um, from where we are now is that we certainly might not have seen ourselves headed this way. Um, you know, I have been doing advocacy work for um, about 20 years. When you met me, I was a criminal defense attorney. Mm -hmm. And um, I really saw how uh, by the time my clients got to me, uh, kind of every system had failed them, whether that be um, education, healthcare, housing. Um, and really, there was not much I could do. And so I made a decision then in my career um, as a result, really, of, of the experience with, uh, with Wild Acres and the Friday Fellowship um, to, to move to the side where I could impact uh, systems and the policy that was made for um, you know, low-income people in communities of color. And I had been doing that advocacy work for uh, about uh, 20 years, a little under that, um, when some people in my community came to me and had asked me to run for district attorney. I'd worked with them on some housing stuff, and we'd started to see really how the criminal legal system has uh, such a uh, 
over it is so present in mm-hmm. the lives of black and brown people um, and how it just really impacts everything their day in their daily lives and uh, and I think there they say you have to ask a woman seven times if she will run I know they asked me at least that many maybe more I said <laughs> no um, but then I started to look ac- around the country and um, see that there were other people who were doing prosecutor work differently. Mm-hmm. I jumped in, and the people of Durham County um, wanted to see a justice system that was more fair, that was really focused on the more serious and violent things, and less focused on people who had substance abuse issues mm-hmm. or mental health issues, or were just poor and lived in the you know in a community that was over police, mm-hmm. um, and they wanted to see less people going to prison for low-level things, and um, and so I won. And I've been doing this now, sworn in on January 1st, 2019. So I've been doing this for three years. Well, and, and, and doing it quite well. So congratulations to you um, for winning. And um, and uh, I know that as, as the next election comes up that you, they will return you to your post as district attorney there. Uh, and, and so thank you for doing the work. So let me ask you a bit about, about the work and being in that leadership role that you're, um, that you're currently in. Uh, with everything that's ha- that has happened and is currently happening within our country related to social justice, um, black and brown communities and their interactions with police and um, the abuses of, uh, and all of those things, with all that's happening, it was what, 2019, I guess it was, that summer, or 20 with George Floyd and all the, the other things that have happened. How are you navigating the landscape and having the real conversations in your role as district attorney? Yeah, that is a good question. I think we have seen uh, since 2020 that the whole nation has turned its, its eyes towards the criminal legal system and how it interacts in the lives of, of black and brown people. And then uh, black and brown people will tell you, we've always been here. Mm-hmm. And we've always known this acted like this. And um, so what are the things that I have been trying to do is not restore trust, because I don't know that we ever had a lot of trust in the system, but create some trust in uh, communities of color around the work we do. Uh, you know, at the end of the day uh, in this job, we disproportionately send a number of uh, uh, black people, really, especially black men mm-hmm. to prison. And so we really have to interrogate that, right? Yeah. What is it? that who are we focused on? What are, um, are we really focused on the things that keep us unsafe? Or are we focused on um, punishing uh, low-income people, Mm -hmm. which disproportionately means black people? Um, For 400 years, this system has been used as a way, honestly, um, to control black people in this country. Mm-hmm. And so how do we shift that so that people who really do need protection, right, people who want safe communities uh, can have that without having to worry that you will mistake their child mm-hmm. um, as somebody who who's the, should come to the attention of the police? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so Satana, let's, let's, let's stay on, on that path for just a second or two related to how race comes into play. Um, criminal justice system, yes. Legal system, yes. How does it come into play? And, and you, as, uh, as a black woman, um, how, how do you deal with the, the lines of delineation or, or barriers that might exist? And, uh, and how, do you, how do you see it as something that's a negative, people could see it, but how do you use it to your advantage to do what you just described, which is to create the trust within the community? Well, what, the way I do it is I just try to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly as black women, uh, as black women who have had some measure of either academic or professional success in this society, we are good at compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I try to do is not compartmentalize. You know, I talk about the real impact of uh, the criminal legal system on my life on the lives of my family and friends and my community. Um, I am the black mother of black children mm -hmm. uh, and my, my children are entering their young adulthood. So they are out driving. Um, they are places where I am not and cannot protect them. And uh, nobody's gonna see my kid and say, oh, that's the district attorney's kid, so leave her alone, right? Right. Um, so I have the same worries that every black mother has about their child driving a car, about their child uh, car breaking down, or uh, their child making one of the you know stupid mistakes that we all make in our youth, mm -hmm. and that impacting them for the rest of their lives. Right. And so I talk about that. Um, I try to build as an office that reflects the people of Durham County. Durham is a very diverse mm -hmm. county, not just race, racially, but ethnically, um, generationally, uh, it is. So we want people with different backgrounds who mm -hmm. see this system through various lenses to be the people who have discretion to make these decisions. Uh, we don't want just one type of uh, decision-making uh, happening here. And I try to be a member of my community. You know, you will see me at the grocery store. People stop me. They want to talk about what we're doing, whether that's positive or negative. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always trying to, to be accessible to people. And what I hope that means is they say, well, we trust them to do what's right. I trust mm -hmm. her to do what's right. Mm -hmm. um, and even if I don't feel like she's done what's right, I feel like I can find her and tell her that. Yes. And that's what increases trust in the community. Yeah. Oh, great. You know, I had I, I had not, I have to admit, I hadn't thought about not compartmentalizing, right, and, and based upon the reasons you're, you just described. Uh, you're right. I think we are very good at compartmentalizing. I know I am too. But I've never challenged that until just listening to you right now of uh, that compartmentalization may have this value but also might be very limiting and being able to have to, to be as truthful and forthcoming in certain ways and having those hard conversations. So thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. So you are quite self-aware, I think. Um, and I think being a leader, and particularly a servant leader, one must be self-aware. How do you, how have you gotten there and how do you continue to make sure that you stay true to self? 
I think I've gotten here through a lot of bumps and bruises. <laughs> uh, I think another thing about being a, a black woman in public service or doing the advocacy work that I have done is that people are not short on criticism. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Everybody has an opinion on how you could do your work better mm -hmm. and how they would do their work, your work. And so for me, because uh, I did kind of, I, you know, I was that kid who wanted to do well in school, wanted you to like her, uh, wanted to be pleasing. I have had to, I, I, I am the type of person who will take that criticism in. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I've had to learn over my career is how to take that criticism in in a way that allows me to grow and not shrink as a person. Um, and for me, that has been just becoming, using that criticism to uh, springboard some self-awareness about who I am. So I take, and, and just really balancing what I can use and what I can't use, mm -hmm. right? And so certainly criticism I can use is how I relate to other people. And, Am I being, uh, am I listening to them? Am I showing them love and compassion and um, making their voices matter? Mm -hmm. That's the opportunity for growth. Yeah. If it says you ain't doing what I told you to do, well, I don't need to take that. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you get a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do, I get a lot of that. And, um, and, you know, as the old folks used to say, uh, they used to tell you, live long enough. <laughs> right? And you will learn some things. And I've also lived long enough and learned some things. And, um, you know, learned I'm not always the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Um, that I can learn from a lot of people who do a lot of different things than I do. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, try to always take that to heart. So. And even if that criticism isn't coming from a good place, the, the person who's providing the criticism, even if that is not necessarily coming from a good place, um, you, can, you can still take the criticism and decide if it's worthy and if it's something that you need to, to start to put into your toolbox or not, or, or discard That's it. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And sometimes people are talking about themselves, they're not talking about you. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> yes, quite a bit actually. Right, right. right. Yep. They're giving you the advice they, they should give themselves mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah so so as a uh, as a female leader as a woman leader what's been throughout your career what has been some of the most significant barriers and how did you overcome those i think as a woman it is the single most significant barrier is being heard mm -hmm. um, every woman will tell you whether she leads an organization or not, um, that she has been in a room where she had an idea and she voiced that idea mm -hmm. and people shot it down or mm -hmm. disregarded it. And then a man said the exact same thing and it was the best thing anybody had ever heard. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that is a, a continuing challenge as a woman. Um, is to be heard. It is a continuing challenge to then lift your voice to be heard and not have people or not care 
because right, people are going to think about you, whatever they think about you, but not care if people think you're aggressive or loud mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I am a relatively short person. I have to, when I uh, am in a room, I have to, as they say in basketball, dominate in the paint. <laughs> so I have to be a bigger person than I may be physically. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that can be a challenge. And that can be exhausting. Yes. Right? To, to always be trying to project that out into the world. Um, and that exhaustion then becomes a barrier to your success in your mm -hmm. career. I too am um, vertically challenged, so I'm. <laughs> I think I'm shorter than you, Satana. So we are both. That's that's saying something. <laughs> that's saying something. That's right. <laughs> but. Uh, um, I have been I have been um, advised on, on a several occasions of uh, being careful of having your my voice heard, and I'm wondering if you have been as well. And from the perspective of um, you call it dominate in the paint, uh, but of being seen as the angry black woman, and I've have I have a response for for those times when um, when I've been told that. Uh, but I'm I'm asking the question I guess if you've been advised about that, and if so. What does that mean to you? Oh, yeah. I've, I think I've been advised about that since junior high school. <laughs> um, and, you know, I used to be afraid of that, of being mm -hmm. the angry black woman. But, you know, now I say to people, look, if I'm raising my voice, it is because I am angry. Mm -hmm. I don't just come here for the fun of it. I don't yeah. just raise my voice for the fun of it. Yeah. I have a platform, right, mm -hmm. from which I get to speak. So I speak all the time. So if I'm speaking, it is because I am angry. It is because I am concerned. Um, yeah, yeah. And that is your thing to carry if you think I'm angry. Agreed. That's not mine. Yes, indeed. And and sometimes it's okay, right? It really is because because the situation calls for it. That's so, correct. Yeah. All right. So um, so now let's. What advice would you share with um, with other young women? who are entering the world of work, the world of profession are already there, and they too are, particularly if they're in, um, entering a predominantly male-dominated discipline or arena, what advice would you give to those young women? I think it is the same advice that I would give to them about their lives in general. Mm -hmm. You are your own best thing. You are your own best advocate. You are the person who speaks for you. Nobody else does that. Um, and so as long as you are staying true to who you believe yourself to be in that moment, you will be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that people will always respond to that uh, in a, a positive way. That doesn't mean that you will always get that job, that promotion, that uh, award, that acclaim. Uh, but it means that you will be better set up for whatever challenge comes to you. And uh, I, it is not an easy lesson to learn. Uh, I, it, I will admit that it took me many years to be my own best advocate. Um, mm -hmm. But whenever I show up as myself, I win. Mm. Mm, like that one. Okay. So, so Tom, if you had a do-over and you could actually start over from scratch, uh, knowing what you know today, uh, would you do anything differently? 
Yeah, that's a hard question <laughs> because uh, I think part of being uh, secure in your life is, you know, just saying, hey, I made the decisions I could with the information that I had at the time, mm -hmm. right? I, I believe the universe unfolds as it should. Um, but if I had to start from scratch, I would uh, say, especially uh, maybe to my awkward teenage self, that uh, you just the way you are now is enough. Ah, okay. And you don't have to, you are pretty enough, you are smart enough, you are tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Uh, you have you, you have everything you need. And, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so I would do that. I would, I would probably be, and this is going to sound like um, the opposite of what I should say. This might be unpopular advice. Mm -hmm. But I would say I would have given, my, given myself more time to decide who I wanted to be ah, career-wise. Uh -huh. um, I think you feel a lot of pressure, uh, especially as a young woman, especially as a young black woman, mm -hmm. especially as a young black woman growing up in a rural, uh, in rural North Carolina, mm -hmm. um, that you gotta, you gotta hurry, girl. You need to decide who you gonna be. Yeah. Yep. Right. You gotta uh -huh. make those decisions. Come on. Get, get to the next thing. Uh, and I would have just given myself some some time on that, uh -huh. uh, because you have really more time than you think you have mm -hmm. to start your life and to start working and um, see the world. You know, meet some meet some different people, mm -hmm. learn some more about yourself. You don't you don't have to uh, be president by forty. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Yeah, I that's uh, it's interesting you say that because I've uh, I've shared that with uh, with my nieces particularly um, who are in college and one who's in a, in a master's program at Harvard, and I said enjoy. This is the time mm -hmm. for you to enjoy and to explore and to to travel and to do some of those things. Uh, you don't have to have all the answers right now. That's correct. Yeah. And and if I had known how fine I was at 25. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm with you. I'm there with you on that one. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. Enjoy. All right. So um, one of the things that... Um, that we did, that we did learn, at least that I, uh, we experienced in the Friday Fellowship, uh, was the opportunity to meet people from across the state of North Carolina. That helped us to build relationships with people whom we may not have ever met. Uh, and I'm a big believer that relationships matter. Relationships matter, and particularly in roles um, uh, of leadership, those relationships matter. They are part of the building block for one's life and one career, personally, professionally, you name it. How have you built relationships and built a circle of trust? And that circle of trust could be, you know, friends, family, colleagues, whatever. But how have you built that circle of trust? And without necessarily calling names, what are the people, what kinds of people do you have in your circle? Yeah, I think uh, 
Ah, that's a hard one in the sense that, um, and it's a good one, good question, because, you know, at different times in your life, you need wider and smaller circles of trust. People who have been most consistent in my life uh, are the people that I met in my young adulthood. And so that is people like you, people who are sorority sisters, people who knew you, who knew me uh, at a time when I was striving and Mm -hmm. yet still didn't have nothing. (laughs) Yes, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Right? And, And so those are the people who I go back to for advice. I think also, and, and you probably recognize this as well. You know, I'm in a political environment. Certainly academia is a political environment. Uh, everybody that's your uh, associate is not your friend. That's right. And, you know, you're, as you grow in your career, your circle gets smaller mm-hmm. and smaller. Yeah. Not because you feel some kind of way or you feel elitist or you're mm-hmm. something. Or the other. Is that there's just people who um, know what you are going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how I guess I have built my circle of trust is it is full of people who know what I've been going through at whatever stage I've been going through. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think, uh, I don't know if people re- really appreciate that, what you just said, Satan, and that the higher your leadership role and the more visibility of it, the smaller the circle, the more isolating it becomes. Absolutely. I mean, there, you know, you reach a certain level and they're just people who are not going to tell you no. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not necessarily that you need to hear no, but you need to hear care. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there are just some people who just don't care about you enough to tell you no. (laughs) <laughs> and, to, and to tell you the real truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth that's correct <laughs> yeah that's correct and also to to um listen to your truth mm-hmm. yeah good point yeah um and that's a two-way street as well right so it's not just that you're those are people who just listen to your truth you listen to them as well mm-hmm. so. yeah all right cool so now, um, you're you're a positive role model, right? You, you uh, that there there are people, uh, young girls, young boys who are looking up to you and saying, "I can be like her. I can do this." Whatever, and they can fill in the blank of whatever that this is. So, and you're modeling uh, um, how to be uh, an effective leader. Uh, and to do that, you've got to have certain values, I'm sure. So I'm going to ask a, two, a two-part question. One is, what are some of your, your values, and in particular those non-negotiable values? And then um, what is your leadership philosophy? So my non-negotiable values are really honesty and, and transparency. I am always trying to be I do not want to be the bad guy in anybody's life and I say that not that I don't want to hold people accountable or that kind of thing is that I I don't want to be the person stopping you from living your best life Mm -hmm. 
and and I don't want you to be the person stopping me from doing that. And so I just really uh, value when people are honest with me and allow me to be honest with them. And I value I'm just kind of really what you said, which is modeling a life out loud. Mm. Um, being who you are, sometimes not your best self, but owning that and owning your own actions and being being yourself and and so that's that's what I value you know you, you talked earlier about being a servant leader mm-hmm. I am willing to lead from the front or the or behind okay right I don't there has there have certainly been times in my career where I needed the credit um, I don't so much need that credit now mm-hmm. what I, I I want to happen is change mm-hmm. and so I am willing to, as long as we get to the change that we want, you know, you don't ever have to mention my name. I don't ever have to be the person who is leading that. I also want to be, you know, I lead, uh, in this particular instance, I lead lawyers. And those are people with specific um, professional development needs, as well as I also lead a lot of uh, young lawyers and a young a, a lot of young lawyers of color, and you know my goal is to set them up uh, for the rest of their career, mm-hmm. and so that sometimes means allowing them to lead me, mm-hmm. allowing them to take the front, um, and so yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm I'm yeah. trying to do. You know, I think uh, I do believe that um, one of uh, one of the one of my trait of an effective leader is uh, knowing when to lead and then when to be a follower, that the followership right. piece is extremely important. And you just, that's what you were just talking about. Yeah. And knowing who to follow because everybody, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. is not followable. Yes. <laughs> and being and being able to discern that for yourself. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they may lead you astray. <laughs> hey, and I have been astray, so it's not a fun place to be. No. So your leadership philosophy is uh, around being an op- being open and honest, uh, a transparent leader who can lead from the front, but also be a follower when necessary. Yes. All right. So now with that, being able to do that and being in the, being in this and, and as the role of a district attorney, some could you know some could say DAs could have an ego because of the just because of the position that. Uh, but as a leader, how do you check your ego at the door? Well, one, I have children, and um, <laughs> they will make they will make you humble regardless, right? Listen, they do not care. <laughs> Uh, about me being DA, what they care about is dinner. <laughs> and when is the car going to be available? Uh-huh. And, and and they really do care about you being your authentic self, right? Mm-hmm. Because when if they get a whiff of it, they want to call you on that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. If they see you, they see how you are at home, and then if they see you in the world, and you're not being who they know you to be, Yeah. They're the first people to say, uh-uh, mama, that's not, you didn't say that. <laughs> said, no, listen, you ought to 
not her. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> but they they do uh, they they do a good job of checking my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, this work I do, I think, does a good job of checking my ego, mostly because I see what other people have been through. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are really um, paying attention to other people's lives and, and other people's pain, um, it's, it's hard to be puffed up about mm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the decisions that we make in this office are life-altering. Yeah, and you have to take that and extremely so seriously. To, yeah, 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 you have to be humble and take that seriously. Yeah. yeah. So you recently testified at the um, U.S. House Judiciary Committee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security. And I think that, that what the session was, or the hearing was, was about, was uh, public safety in, during the pandemic, during COVID-19, and, and what does that look like? Uh, I've, re- I've read your, the testimony that you provided to, uh, to the committee, but can you talk to us a bit about what it was that you were discussing, and why was it important for you to be there and to share your, your views? Well, I'll start with the last question first. Um, it was important for me to be there because most prosecutors do not look like me. Mm-hmm. Less than 2% of elected prosecutors in the United States are women of color, not just black women, women mm-hmm. of color. Yeah. Um, and so when you, when people think of a prosecutor, they think of, you know, kind of a middle-aged mm-hmm. white man. Right. Um, which I am not. Mm-hmm. And so it is It is important for those of us who do not look like the stereotype, I think, to be, to have our voices heard. Mm-hmm. And to say everybody doesn't think the same way about everything. And that we all want to keep our community safe. And we have different ways in which we can do that. Mm-hmm. What I talked to the committee about uh, were a couple things. One is that it was the reform of the criminal legal system, which in the sense that we are, you and I are children of the uh, 80s and 90s, and we saw the ramp up in the mass incarceration of black and brown people. I know uh, kids that I grew up with, so many of them ended up in situations where they had interactions with the criminal legal system. And because I knew them, Right, I'd known them growing up. I knew their families. I knew that they weren't criminals. Mm-hmm. Right, I knew that they were. Some of them were just people who had made bad choices um, for lack of economic opportunity because of mental health issues or whatever, um, and that weren't really paying attention to the things that keep us unsafe. We were just locking up people that we disagreed with how they were living their lives. Um, So it was important for me to talk about how we separate that out, how we talk about public safety in a way that's really talking about public safety and that's not uh, moving forward into the next century, the type of stereotypes and racial animus that we've used for 400 years. And it was important to talk about really what has happened during the pandemic, which is that Americans have bought more guns, that they are afraid, that they have lost, uh, they have lost people that they loved, mm-hmm. either to 
the virus or to depression or to violence and um, and that there was the biggest increase in poverty ever in the United States in 2020. And that really affects people. It does, it has an impact and it has an impact from, um, you know, on the things you can see, but also on people's psychological and emotional well-being. That's right. And we may not see that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're we seeing the, the children, uh, folks who were mass incarcerated in the 80s and 90s and their lack of educational and economic opportunity now. Mm -hmm. We don't see that until 20, 30 years later. Right. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so if we are not aware of what is happening to people right now, what are we going to see in 20 years? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you think about it, you, while we're looking at twenty to thirty to forty years out, what will what will the generation look like? What will society look like? And when we when those folks are released and come back to try to reimmerse within the within the community and society, it's going to be a tough transition if we don't have the resources available while they're incarcerated, but also when they get out. That's right, and you know, um, everybody comes home. Mm -hmm. Very few people don't, right? Yeah. So everybody comes home from prison. Dirty little secret of the criminal justice system is that not only are all the defendants black and brown, but all the victims are too. Oh. And yeah. so when we talk about being victim-centered, what victims are we talking about? Right. We're often talking about people who are part of the same family, who live in the same neighborhood. Um, yeah. So how are we going to provide services for and resources for them? Yeah. Well. Wow. So, Satan, are you are SDA? Are you having those conversations with with the community? Various resources, right? The Department of Social Services, the school system whomever or whatever uh, departments to help people feel safe and feel a sense of belonging in their communities or feel a sense of safety and protection while being a person of color, being black, being Latino, or et cetera. Yeah, I think we are starting to have those conversations here in Durham. We want to talk about the root causes mm -hmm. of poverty and how those relate to crime and violence. Um, you know, we also want to have, I, I don't usually get involved until something bad has happened. Right. Right. Prosecutor doesn't get involved until a crime has happened and somebody's been arrested. Mm -hmm. Right. People often are, are not arrested. And so um, how do we, uh, and then how do we deal with it? Right. Because we, we are, people often aren't arrested because communities don't want to talk. They don't want uh that person may be a member of their own family. Um, it may be somebody they've known their whole lives. They don't want them to get in trouble, but they also don't want, want to continue to be a victim. Um, mm -hmm. And so these are complicated issues that, and certainly not gonna be solved just from my seat. You know, it's gonna require all of us in a community um, I used to work with a nonprofit that had a, uh, he wasn't able to get it funded, but he had a really great idea about doing trauma-informed services around a, a block where a murder had happened, 
right? So if the murder happens, the whole community essentially stops and does triage there. Mm. Do the people um, on that block need to recover from that particular trauma, mm-hmm. right? There may be a child who saw that dead body on the street. There may be a mother who was just coming home to, to, to find out that her child had been murdered. Mm-hmm. How do we provide, you know, those type of um, immediate Right. Uh, critical services. Mm-hmm. And then how do we look at the people on that block and say, what do you need for this not to happen again? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Do we need, do you, the houses need to be fixed up? Is there a vacant lot that needs to be cleaned up? Um, how can we do this without an intervention um, that involves the police mm-hmm. and the things that you are afraid of uh, that will happen? Yeah, I, you know, as, as a servant leader, what you're, what you're talking about to me is, um, is what a servant leader is supposed to be doing. What, so what I hear is you are looking at this from, there, may, there are going to be times when it's going gonna, it's gonna to be punitive. But you're also looking at this as what can be preventative and how, where can you be proactive and working with the rest of the community and various resources and individuals in the community to attack the root causes of what's making the punitive stuff come into play. Correct. Wow. That, that is a, a true sign for me of a servant leader. So thank you for what you and your team are doing um, in that you. regard. Um, you mentioned just a few minutes ago about um, being one of the very few and that only 20% of district attorneys within the country are women of color. Um, 2%. 2%. Less than 2%. Less than 2%. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing and, and unfortunate, very much unfortunate. But with statistics like that, what concrete actions can we, you, we, whoever, take to improve DE&I than the profession? Well, the, the one, I always tell people, start from where you are. There is something that you can do in your circle in your career, in your profession, um, to make things better. In my office, we're trying to not only, I'm trying not only to hire uh, assistant district attorneys and staff who look like the community, we have an internship program that's a national model where we're trying to encourage uh, law students of color to become prosecutors. Mm. If you talk to Law students of color, one of the last things they want to do, <laughs> right, is yep. work in a prosecutor's office. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, of all the jobs in the, the legal profession <laughs> <laughs> that they have to choose from. Yes. Uh, because they already know, right, what the history of this work is. That's right. And, and so within our office, we are trying to build through our internship program a different type of prosecutor uh, uh, who is community-centered, who's value-based, who looks through an equity lens in the use of their discretion, Um, like you said, who has a holistic approach, Mm -hmm. who knows that sometimes we are going to have to put people in prison, but the vast amount of time we should be able to hold people accountable without locking them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, I agree with you about the attorney. My late husband was a prosecutor, so back then, that it was it was a thankless um, profession. He thoroughly enjoyed his work, uh, but it had that those moments of not being uh, of being a thankless job. So, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll encourage folks to to go into the profession. And the more um, attorneys of color who go into being prosecutors, I think the better off the system becomes. Oh, sure. And the more attorneys of color who go into it, just the more, we don't all think alike either. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So the more diversity of opinion, I am a big believer in the wisdom of crowds. Uh-huh. And diversity of opinion is an important thing. It is, it is how innovation happens. It is. Yes. So I don't require that my prosecutors think like me. I just require that my prosecutors think. Right. <laughs> yes, and, and think critically. And think critically. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, District Attorney D. Berry, how are you ensuring that you grow and continue to develop? Because it, it is a journey. Not, now, hopefully there's no destination there. But how do you plan to continue to grow and develop as a, as a leader? Well, one of the things that I know uh, for sure about my career is that I will not be doing this forever. Yes. And so I do spend some time thinking about what is next for me. Where are the, what's the leading edge of, of my growth as a person? Mm -hmm. um, whether that's professional or personal. I have, you know, I am a little girl from Hamlet, North Carolina. Yeah. I have. I think already exceeded what my wildest dreams for myself might have been. Mm -hmm. And so what do I do if, if that's, what do I do next? Right. How uh -huh. do I find the next uh, great adventure for me? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some, I do some of that by expanding my circle. There are a new group of people that I have met doing this work um, that has exposed me two different things. I am uh, at the age, I think, where I am exploring my faith journey mm -hmm. and what that means and where that will take me. And, uh, you know, I will soon be the parent of adult children. And I told them I'm going to try to take myself back to about 32 when they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> And, and return to doing some of the things that I enjoyed before. Uh -huh. uh, the, the only thing I did was, you know, all my social life result revolved around them. Yep. So. <laughs> get back to doing some of, of your things, right? <laughs> yeah, get back to travel and enjoying the world mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Cool. So I've got about two or three questions, uh, questions remaining for you. Um, one, okay. um, so what is one of the biggest challenges um, you think is facing your profession today? And what do you think is going to be in the next five to 10 years? One of the big, biggest challenges for lawyers is the stress of the work mm -hmm. and the, the habits that sometimes come along with that that impact your life. Um, lawyers have high rates of substance abuse. They have high rates of mental health issues. Um, they have high rates of intimate partner violence. Some of that is because as uh, an attorney, 
I keep a lot of secrets. Mm -hmm. That is just part of the job. And um, part of keeping those secrets um, makes it you to, and, and part of even getting and putting those secrets uh, hmm. makes you seem like a less emotional person to people. Right. And um, so I think the biggest challenge, especially uh, for women and people of color who are in this profession, is uh, honestly making it out alive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that will continue to be be the challenge. People, uh, people drink too much. They uh, engage in lots of, of risky behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think pulling back from some of that and being a, a more full and emotional person will always yeah. be the challenge. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and just maintaining your humanity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, look at, uh, I look at autopsy pictures almost mm -hmm. every day. Mm. And there is a way that that flattens out your affect yeah. and the way you see people. And I, you know, I remind uh, the prosecutors in my office that for many people, they are a reminder of the very worst day in their lives. Mm. And if that is the only context mm. in which you deal with people is that everybody you deal with is only thinking of you as a reminder mm -hmm. of the very worst day of their lives, you start to think of yourself right. that way. Wow. So it's, it's good that you are uh, cognizant of this, not just cognizant, but uh, doing, hoping to, trying to make sure that your, that your team members, that your, the, uh, the prosecutors in your office are taking care of themselves and um, engaging in the self-care and providing them with hopefully the resources that they need to, to make sure that they maintain their humanity and their psychological and emotional well-being. So. Yeah, this job is full of secondary trauma. Mm-hmm, yes. Wow. All right. So I'm going to switch the gears on you. Tell me somebody who inspires you and why. You inspire me. Like all the black women that I know in my life who have, have been through so much mm -hmm. and get up every day and still go to uh, work and school and are, you know, positive influences in other people's lives. I, um, you know, your, your listeners may or not know that we are also sorority sisters. Yes. And uh, I have been active in my uh, local alumni chapter. Mm -hmm. And I am, I mean, those women just, they remind me of why I am a Delta. Exactly, right? yes. Uh, because they are doing the most. <laughs> yes, indeed. I agree. And, the ladies of Delta Sigma Theta really do. We rock. <laughs> we rock. And, you know, you ask me how I stay humble. That's also how I stay humble, mm -hmm. right? Because they, they don't care who you are. If you're not working, you know, mm -hmm. if you're not in the chapter working, <laughs> right? Yes. You're not gonna, you don't, you don't get, you're not going to get no cred with them, Exactly. Right? So, so they are a reminder to do that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, you know, j to be fair, all the members of the Divine Nine are all doing great work across the land. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, so, Tana, what's something about you that, that wouldn't be found in any article written about you? Wow. <laughs> I want to, you know, 
one of the downsides of being transparent is that I'm transparent. So, uh, <laughs> I think you might find, when you Google me, you might find more than you want to know. Yes. <laughs> uh, what is, is something that people uh, might not know about me? Let me, Let me go down in my deepest, darkest. <laughs> Be careful now. Recesses of my soul. I, you know, I had somebody ask me um, recently that if I wasn't doing this, mm-hmm. um, what would I be doing? And about 10 years ago, my mother and my grandmother passed away within 30 days of each other. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> neither one of them had been sick. And then it just, over a six week period, they, they both got very ill and, and eventually passed away and the process and and I don't want people to take this the wrong way but the process of it was comforting in the sense that there are um, you grew up in a rural black community there are traditions and family and ways in which people um, handle the passing from this life to the next um, that celebrate that person's life and their journey. And, uh, you know, if we don't call them funerals, we call them home, homecomings, mm-hmm. homegoings, yep. right? Because uh-huh. this, this place here is not our home. Right. Right. And so that really uh, sparked in me an interest in African-American um, funeral traditions mm. and um, death doula being at death dueling and so um, over the past 10 years I have been a death doula for various um, friends of mine who have who have passed Mm -hmm. and so if uh, I weren't doing this I would be um, I think I'd be a funeral director okay because uh, that process just like I think there is so much richness um, that that the African-American tradition brings to that. And mm-hmm. we are losing some of those traditions and I, I hope to be able to preserve them. And so. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, that I did not expect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good for you. I appreciate that. And any last words of wisdom you would have to uh, people who are, who are immersed in leadership or about to get into this thing called leadership? We are the ones we have been waiting for. Yes. I am not special. And if I am special, I am the same kind of special you are. Woohoo! Thank you. Thank you for that one. I'm ha- I'm, I need you to know I'm going to take some of your words that you've used today. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> Use them freely, yes. without attribution. Yes, I, I, the wisdom of the crowd. I really do like that one. <laughs> uh, and it works. Yes. Thank you, Satana, for sharing your words of wisdom about truth-telling, not compartmentalizing to the point that it reduces one's true self, how to be accessible, how to use criticism, regardless of how it was given, to grow and to strive as an opportunity. How to use your true identity, regardless of what that identity is, to dominate in the paint.
to be your own best advocate, your own sponsor, your own cheerleader. And one of the important things or two of the important things that you said, one of modeling a life out loud, in essence, knowing your values, living and leading from your values, owning who you are. And one of your things that I really liked that you talked about was understanding and accepting the wisdom of the crowd. And the crowd has wisdom and has advice and a story to tell. And you need to listen to the crowd. Join me for the next episode as we continue the journey of becoming successful and effective leaders. This is Virginia Hardy, your host of Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Thank you for joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? Or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge? Join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.